A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at uh1.com. Since Bruce Arians couldn't fix Jameis Winston, does that change your opinion of Dirk Cutter and why he was fired? And who benefits more from the Rob Gronkowski trade, Tom Brady or O.J. Howard? And could cities or counties renegotiate their lease agreement with teams if they play the games with no fans since they may lose revenue? We've got all your mailbag questions answered 100% correctly on this edition of Sports Day Tampa Bay. I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times along with producer Steve Versnick. Busy day, of course, on Thursday. Man, we had the Gronkowski stuff, Jameis Winston, um, you know, O.J. Howard, you name it. Uh, so we, we held back uh, our mailbag segment, and we've got lots of really good questions uh, today for that. And so let's get right to it. All right, our first question is from Peter, and he asks, How much power or say does Jameis Winston's agent really have? Because it sure seems like there was someone else pulling the strings after this offseason for number three. You know, this is a great question, Peter, and, and I'll tell you why, because I've oft, often thought the same thing, and I've actually asked this question to people around Jameis. I will say this, that with respect to this negotiation, at least, or decision to sign with the New Orleans Saints, that Joel Siegel, who's a really good agent, by the way, I mean, he's had some, some, he has some big-name players every year, obviously, um, and he's had a couple on the Bucks team in the past as well, like Deshaun Jackson and some others, and I, you know, I look at that contract and I think, gosh, what, you know, what is he thinking and going into a place that has a backup quarterback and is he going to be number three and yeah, Drew Brees. But at, at the end of the day, as Stephen A. would say, this is between Jameis and the agent. And from what I understand, Siegel did not, you know, get influenced, um, by anyone out, you know, outside of, of of just Jameis, he only dealt with Winston. Like he he didn't talk to the family, um, you know, he didn't talk to his wife or per se. I mean, he, you know, him and him and Jameis were, you know, Jameis was pretty much telling him what the what he wanted to do, what why he thought New Orleans was good for him right now. I mean, look, I don't think any agent is going to help his career, if you will. Not that Joel Siegel needs to, because he's established. But but no agent's gonna get very far if he does you know deals like that one right if he if he takes a guy that that was making twenty million and then the next year he's making one point one when most backups are making seven or eight million a year it just it doesn't make sense unless okay you have a client like Jameis Winston and that's the thing about being an agent is that you're only as good as your client that's that's really it and and. You know, what client control do you have? I mean, Jameis is pretty strong-willed. We know that. And I don't think anybody was pulling the strings except Jameis Winston. Did his family somehow influence him? Uh, I, of course they do. I mean, they're they're very um, influential, you know. Um, Antonor and, 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 you know, and his family have a lot of particular opinions, and they express them all the time. And so, of course, he's going to listen to his family. But I think that on this one, you know, the client was telling the agent what he wanted to do and he was going to do it. And the agent's job is to say, yeah, but right. Like, what about this? Like, what if you don't get to play? 
And, and I would imagine that's the conversation that Siegel would have had with Winston, you know, before they did the sign the deal was, listen, you're leaving, you, you know, you're worth more than this. And so you're not getting anything close to what your value is. That's number one. If you're good with that, let's move on to the big question. How do you feel if you go to New Orleans and you never play, right? And and if you don't play, they don't necessarily offer you to the job to succeed Drew Brees. And you're just starting again next year with your reputation and no film for a season. Uh, and so how, how, does, how does that make you better? And do you, do you still want to do this? And Winston's answer was, yeah, I do. I think this is what I need right now. I think I need to learn to play the position. If you think about it, you know, Winston came to the NFL, you know, he had the great season and won the national championship and was just terrific as far as even protected the ball that year. And then the next year he was what we've seen for the last five. But when he came to Tampa Bay, he had this savior complex. They were a horrible football team. They were two and two and 14, I think, or three and 13. And it took years to build around him. Um, but he was so busy playing quarterback and trying to be the quarterback that I'm not sure he really learned much, you know? Uh, I mean, and he, I think he had good coaching and I think he worked at it, but he was also caught up in trying to win, you know? And, and what he's saying to Joel and, and to the saints is I need to, I need to step back and do some learning. You know, I'm out there with my instincts. I'm out there, you know, with what I'm being taught each week and trying to please people. But I never really had a chance to see how it's really done up close and personal at this level because I was the starter. I never, I didn't come in and I wasn't Aaron Rodgers, right, who sat behind Brett Favre and, you know, I I wasn't uh, Patrick Mahomes. Okay, there's the latest example who sat behind Alex Smith. What has he become? The best quarterback in the NFL. So Jameis recognizing this is like, look, I never, I never got to do that. I want to, I want to see how that helps me. Maybe you know, because that might be my path back to the rest of my year, of my career. And so that's that's sort of why he's doing it. But I, I don't, I don't think, I think Jameis had all the power. Now, was the influence, of course, but ultimately, you know, this wasn't his agent's idea, and you know, it's his career, it's Jameis's career. So I think Jameis, Jameis pulled the trigger on this. All right, Eric asked. What do you think the crowd reaction will be at Raymond James Stadium when Jameis Winston checks in at quarterback for the Saints if Sean Payton finds a way to get him in there and there are fans in the stands? Well, I mean, I don't think Payton's going to get him in there just for garbage time. That wouldn't make much sense. But if he happens to play uh, and be be the starter or come into the game that's competitive and, and you know, God forbid, Breeze gets hurt in that game against against the Bucks, my reaction is just what it's been which is mixed. I have never covered a more polarizing player or athlete than Jameis Winston. And this goes back to their selection of him. I mean, when Lovey Smith sat us down, uh, I think it was myself and then Roy Cummings of the Tampa Tribune in his hotel room in Indianapolis back in 2015 and said, guys, let's talk about the elephant in the room, okay? I mean... You weren't there. I wasn't there. All this other stuff. BB guns, Rick. My brother and I had BB guns. You know, when we stopped shooting BB guns, we realized one was going to poke our eyes out. You know, crab legs. I, mean, I had to hook up. You know, when I was in college, I had to hook. 
and and it started there you know it just did and and from there on it has been nothing but this segment of people don't like Jameis even a little bit and then this segment of people he can do no wrong and I mean no wrong now they may be Florida State fans they may just be Jameis fans but boy are they loyal and so for that reason I would assume that that will be sort of the mixture at Raymond James if and when he were to run onto the field. And I, I think you'll hear lots of cheers, and I think you'll hear a hell of a lot of boos. Now, maybe more boos now because I have seen some people sort of drifting towards the Bucks side. You know, once your guy leaves and it's like, okay, well, he's not – he you know, how dare he? He left me. I'm not going to root for him anymore. Go Bucks. you know. So that's that's been some of the reaction. So there might be more boos, but I think it'll be mixed because that's – that's his, been his career. All right. Alejandro asks, now that Jameis is in New Orleans, what is your favorite Jameis Winston moment and or game? Wow. <laughs> so many of them. Fame, best Jameis Winston moment and or game. You got to check your sheet on that one. I'm try, I am, I'm literally checking my sheet. <laughs> that was the best. That might have been the best moment in terms of like, that was probably the walk-off, aha, what-the-hell-just-happened moment. Check your sheet. There was Apparently a couple of them. should have said give... check Google, but. You know, here's the thing. This was never, and I'm, I know people don't believe this, especially those that <laughs> love Jameis, but, um, you know, from a, from a professional standpoint or a personal standpoint, I've got, I got along with Jameis just fine, right? His family probably doesn't think much of me or the people that, like I said, that root for him, but that's only because I wrote a lot of stories about him playing bad. <laughs> so uh, when he played well, I can show you all the stories I wrote about him playing well. And yet, you know, I mean, he came to the Bucks. He was, what, 21 years old, barely? He was a kid, you know? And, and I'm not minimizing what had happened at Florida State, and he was, a, he was man enough to know what to do, what was right and wrong, and, and then later got in trouble again. So forget about the off-field stuff for a minute. I'm just saying, like, just day-to-day interactions with him, you know, he 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 did the press conferences, he he skirted around a bunch of questions, but he he stood up there and he answered them and you know, we were fine. There was one weird moment though. Um I'll give you I'll give you a couple. I think one was early in his career, he was playing in a game and he got hit in the knee and it was obvious that um it might have been his rookie year or, or his second year, but he got hit in the knee, and it was obvious that he was in a lot of pain. And he limped off He limped off the field. Uh, and he wound up finishing the game, but I, you could tell he was hurt. You know what I mean? And I don't remember if they pulled him a series or he, or he shouldn't have been in a series, but there, there came in the postgame, the question, and I asked it, was um, – well, I think they had taken him out for a series. I said, did they, did they take you out because you were hurt? And he really didn't answer the question. He was kind of like, I don't, you know, I'm fine. My knee, you know, I said, well, you look like you hurt your knee. No, my knee's fine. My knee's fine. And he got real, he got like really testy about it. And I, it's like, we watched the game. We saw you were clearly in pain. So then, but after the press conference, he came down off the podium and he stood in front of me and he did this sort of like, 
quick step, like, I don't, I don't know what the hell, like a dance thing, <laughs> you know, like Michael Jackson or something. I don't know what he was doing, but he was showing me how, you know, how well, how, how good his knee felt. You'll see, see, see my knee's fine. My knee's fine. And I was like, okay, good. Like, it's fine. Great. And, and so that was like, he was sensitive about the injury or something like that. That was weird. But then, um, you know, he, I mean, he had, he had great moments. I truly believed, and I wrote this, and you can go back and check your sheet, that, or, or the Tampa Bay Times, as the case may be, that after the Detroit game, he had thrown, he had thrown the previous week for four fifty-six and four touchdowns, and then he goes to Detroit, not a good Detroit team without Matthew Stafford, but nonetheless, he was on fire. Like for two weeks, I'm telling you, he couldn't miss. Right. Deep balls for for days. I mean, you know, at that point, Brashard Perriman was like the only receiver. I think Chris Godwin played the first half of that game in Detroit, but he goes for four fifty eight and four touchdowns, and uh, they beat the Lions. And he's now, I think, he had won four in a row at that point, and four or five in a row, four in a row because he never won five. And I wrote that okay, that's it. Like I know he's got two more games. The Texans at home. You know, um, the wrapping up with Atlanta. Let's say he wins one of them and he ends up winning six out of his last seven. And, you know, the way he's playing, that's it. You know, he's he's made a great argument to come back. And I'm thinking under the franchise tag, right, like 27 mil. This is two weeks before the end of the season, not that long ago. And then the, the final two games come and it's just they're cataclysmic for him, you know. And he had lots of help because Matt Gay missed three kicks against the Falcons and you know, we remember the walk-off overtime pick six. But those two games overshadowed everything he had done, um, good and bad, before that. And I think that's what convinced Bruce Arians. You know, we were 7-7. Seven and seven. We should have been the playoff team. We certainly should have been a winning team, and we didn't, and decided he wanted to move on. So um, those are the two moments. I, mean, I can remember, and he even said, he goes, you know, he was asked, do you think you've done enough to stay here? He goes, I hope I have. I hope I have. And and then the final two games came. But those stand out for whatever reason. Jim asks, so it appears that Bruce Arians decided Jameis Winston could not be fixed or saved. Does that change your opinion of Dirk Cutter and why he was fired? Um, well, I could see why you would think that. But my opinion of Dirk Cutter is the same as it was coming in, which was I thought he's an extraordinary play caller. Uh, I think his offense, you know, had probably as many or more explosive plays as any offense I've seen, including B.A.'s last year. And I think you can document that, actually. Having said all that, you know, whether Bruce was successful or not successful with James, I thought I thought it was going to be a difficult task. I thought that one year, you know, you're really asking a lot. You don't know this guy. You're putting in a new offense. It was sort of like Jameis's last best chance, but it was it was a big bar to get over for Bruce to to try to turn things around. You know, I mean, you can't. I mean, this is the Queen Mary here, or the the you know the Titanic, as it turns out, and those things don't have a quick turning radius. So um, I wasn't surprised Bruce couldn't get it done, um, and I know why he was hired to do just that. But Dirk had other, you know, Dirk had some other holes. I mean, as a head coach, I mean, he just did, you know. Um, he he tried really hard, and I thought he had, I thought he had a good approach. And I, the one thing about Dirk that people miss is that he was always 
prepared. Like that that guy that guy would agonize over a team meeting and what he was going to say. I mean, he thought he thought through things maybe ad nauseum, you know, maybe a little too much. But, you know, the NFL is it's difficult and and you know, Dirk said it almost from the time he was hired that somebody asked him one time about Jameis's future and he just kind of cavalierly said, "Oh, Jameis is going to be here long after me." And I got to, you know, it was curious he said it that way, but I got to realizing that he was just stating fact that like, you know, they will give Jameis more time if he needs it. But if I don't win, I'm fired. And that's exactly what happened. He didn't win after that first season when he went nine and seven, and then he was fired. And so, you know, he sort of had a, a pretty good grasp of his situation. I mean, all coaches are hired to be fired, but he didn't get to be a head coach in the NFL until he was like 57. And so, um, look, I, I like Dirk. I, I thought he knew a lot. You know, was he a great, you know, did he have thick skin? Did he, you know, uh, did he have a handle on how bad the defense? I mean, the thing about the defense with Dirk was his flaw was that he was loyal. He's that guy that's loyal to a fault, right? Mike Smith got him in the NFL. He got him to Jacksonville when Mike Smith, um, you know, was a defensive coordinator there. And then he hired him in Atlanta when Mike Smith became the head coach. And those were big breaks for Dirk. That's sort of how Dirk got to be a head coach. And so he rewarded Mike by making him his defensive coordinator, and he was awful. And I mean awful. Like the worst I've seen, I think, in the years that I've covered the Bucks. It it wasn't professional football at one point when they got when they let Mitch Trubisky throw like five touchdowns in the first half and then six overall. So Dirk, you know, came in after that game and said, Hey, uh, you know, brutal game, like what changes are you gonna make any changes? And he's like, What changes would I make? Like, well, what about the defensive coordinator? He goes, What good would it do firing one guy? getting rid of one guy well two weeks later he got rid of that one guy and it was his friend and it was tough but um yeah i i don't think my opinion of dirk is is changed i just think that it's more evidence and so is the 1.1 million dollar contract with the saints that this is not a coaching problem you know he can google all he wants to (laughs) his his coaching tips i guess but Google, unless Google can solve your interceptions or your turnovers, it doesn't really matter who the coach is. He's had good coaching. This is a myth. You know, and I hear this sometimes from, from Jameis's camp, which I can only assume part of that's his family, is that, and I think his trainer has said this online, that he needs a modern-day coach. Well, I don't know what, you know, were Dirk, so you're saying that Dirk and B.A. are just too damn old, the game passed them by? I mean, what are you saying? You know, I don't agree with that. I don't think Byron Leftwich is too damn old. I don't think Clyde Christensen really is too damn old. He, he coached Peyton Manning. So I don't, I don't know what that means. Um, you know, but anyway, that's – no, I don't, I don't think any less of, of, uh, of Dirk Cutter or any different of Dirk Cutter just because B.A. couldn't fix James. Okay, Ren asks, who benefits more from the Rob Gronkowski trade? Tom Brady or O.J. Howard? Well, I think it's Brady, right? Because, I mean, he, he's a guy that came to the uh, first time in 20 years he's been any place. He spent his whole career in New England. And to my knowledge, he didn't know a single coach or player. You know, Jason Light was with the organization when he was drafted. Yeah, you'd see him now and then. And they kind of – he didn't really know him, know him, right? He, he just 
they, they had a relationship or at least a professional, uh, you know, recognition of one another. Um, but I, you know, I think that, that Tom does because, you know, Tom rely, has relied on Gronkowski to the point of where they're both Hall of Fame players and he's going to know where, where Rob is going to be. And I think, I think Rob's influence on that room, on that tight end room, including OJ, or maybe especially OJ, uh, will also benefit Tom. So Tom benefits in, in, in Gronkowski helping OJ and also just from being around, right, from having a familiar face, from having a key, a key part of your, your offense that understands you and you don't have to tell him where to go. He's going to be there, and there's trust. And that word trust is so huge in professional sports, especially football. So no doubt in my mind, it's definitely Tom Brady. Okay, Brian asks, do you think that Ronald Jones will be able to take another step forward, or is it likely that peak Rojo was last year? I'm going to say that the step forward he takes may not be as evident to some people in terms of yards, which is how we measure running backs, it seems. I think he'll take a step forward. I, I don't know that it's going to be a, one that's that's big enough for him or, or for the team. I mean, look, he still has talent. He's still an explosive runner, but that's what he is, right? He's a runner. And even though he had 33 catches last year, you know, he his screen game is solid, okay? And and that's a good thing. But he's not that running back that, they, that, that Tom Brady requires to come out of the backfield, um, you know, line up as a receiver one time as in the slot the next time uh you know and run the route tree and stuff like that and for that reason that's why they drafted you know Keyshawn Vaughn out of Vanderbilt and you know you got a guy in the third round that can do it all you know he's what like five foot ten and 214 pounds or something like that he's a powerful guy not not a blazer not a burner he runs like a four five forty but has great hands and is a three down back. And no matter how you slice it, no matter how much you love Ronald Jones, what he's not is a three down back. And, you know, he can't stay on the field as easily in passing situations as say Keyshawn Vaughn will. So, you know, I tend to think that Rojo could take a step forward, but I think that Vaughn ultimately is going to be a bigger playmaker, if that makes sense. I think Vaughn's going to get lots of chances in the in the pass game. I mean, Brady threw over 100 completions to his receiver, his, his running backs the last five years each year, and, and so someone's got to pick that up. So um, a step forward maybe, but you're, it'll probably feel more like the Kishan Vaughn show before it's over. All right, Buck North asks, the Bucks have revamped their defense since Bruce Arians arrived. They transitioned from a 4-3 to a 3-4, which may have accounted for some early struggles last year. But what player from last year's draft needs to take a big leap in order for this defense to go to the next level? Great question. And I think that the scheme was a, was a bit of the problem, you know, but they I thought they adjusted that fairly simple because whether you have a 3-4, 4-3, you're still rushing – Four down linemen. Shaq Barrett went off and had 19 and a half sacks to lead the league. When JPP came back, he he was very, um, very productive. As far as the next step, right? You talk about the next step to, to greatness, and we saw the secondary really grow up at the end of the year. Guys like Carlton Davis and Sean Murphy Bunting and Jamel Dean, they need to take a next step. I mean, they do. 
but their their step last year was pretty damn good. They I think uh Dean and um you know probably Davis led the NFL in, in pass breakups. Um so that was big. The guy that has to take the step it's gonna sound weird, but um you know, I, I really think that it's Devin White. I think it's their middle linebacker. And he he did take that step at the end of the year. He was the rookie of the year for November and December in the NFC last year. Uh, defensive rookie of the year. A rookie of the month, those last two months. I think had he stayed healthy the first early in the part of the year, he might have been rookie of the year. Who knows? But to me, Devin White is a game wrecker. Devin White has so much upside that he's just begun to feel and scratch the surface. I mean, he can absolutely use him as a guy to rush the passer. He's great in coverage. Um, He's fast as hell. You know, he comes downhill. And if he can stay in the lineup and and in his second year, like everything was new to him last year. He didn't know the, the playbook. He didn't know the rhythm of the NFL and the length of the season and how to stay healthy and all those things. And he had some bad luck with tonsillitis the first week and such. Um, but if, if Devin White becomes the monster that I think he's going to be, this defense will just rise to another level. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash achieve today. All right, Ren asked the second question, and he said, What position rooms cannot absorb a major injury to a starter? quarterback rooms off the table probably the offensive line uh you know depending on who the starter is uh i think that um you know they they got joe haig from indianapolis who who can play a lot of positions which is great and and he's serviceable he started a number of games for the colts but he's more of that that sort of swing guy but, look, if you lost, and I know people don't like this guy. I don't know why. I think he does an incredible job. But if you lost the Donovan Smith, right, and no matter what you think about him, he's there every week. He damn near never misses a snap. Um, could he Could he block longer at times? And has he given up some sacks? Yes. Uh, he better not do it next year or if he, he'll get the franchise killed. Um but I don't know that you have a lot of guys that can step in and, and play on the offensive line. I don't think their depth is really good. I love love some of their starters, especially interior. You know, Jensen's coming off a great year. Ali Marpet, I think is I think is a Pro Bowl talent. Alex Kappa played most of the year with a broken arm. I think he's going to be a beast. Um, and then you know, clearly the guys they drafted and Tristan Wirfs is going to be really really good too. So I, I like their offensive line, um, but I don't know that it's deep. And so for that reason, I just think it's hard to replace those guys. If you, got, if you took a bunch of hits in, at, at that unit at the same time, I think, you'd be, I think you'd struggle a bit. All right, we'll kind of switch topics here. And Craig in Vegas asked, how does county and cities that help fund stadium and arenas now with the chance that events won't happen in these venues and they count on that revenue based on the investment, they can, can they renegotiate the lease agreements with their primary tenants? I mean, teams will get the TV revenue, but cities now will get zero if there's no fans in the stands. 
Well, I suppose you can try to renegotiate whatever the the team will will, will be willing to do. Um, as far as as far as no fans in the stands, and Steve, you made this point when we were going through these questions. I, I mean, I think it's a good one, and I, I I would defer to you because, you know, it's the municipalities that are making the rules. <laughs> so yeah, my first thought is uh, the county and the city or the state won't let you put fans in the stands. Yeah, right. So, right. so your rules are preventing you from making money. Now, you know, at the end of the day, that would all come down to lawyers and what actually contracts are in. And and generally, all contracts have some kind of clause for not pandemics, but events that you don't foresee coming and, you know, big things like that. Some catastrophe. Yeah. yeah, There's, there's most contracts have those kind of language in there, but you know, exactly what it is and how I have no idea. Um, Right. But yeah, I mean, you know, not only are the teams losing money from gates, but you know, the Tampa sports authority and, and St. Petersburg with Tropicana field and all that, you know, they're not getting revenue from people coming through the doors or parking or, you know, you name all that stuff. Mm Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's the county and the cities saying you you can't have people congregating at this point, right? So it'd be tough yeah, that, to it'd be tough to go to the teams going, yeah, we're going to renegotiate a deal because we're not letting you perform your business. <laughs> you can't have anybody in the building, but you better pay us for not having anybody in the building. <laughs> so I, I'm not a lawyer, but I would think that would be tough. Yeah, it's just kind of a weak argument when you think about it, you know. <laughs> So let me get this straight. You wouldn't let us have anybody in there, and then now we got to pay you because nobody's in there. Yeah. I get it. Some good questions for sure. Yeah. So Any more? Oh, yeah, we got a couple more. Casey asked. Okay. Since we now have two Tyler Johnsons in Tampa Bay, are there any Tyler Johnsons anywhere in baseball that could be traded to the Rays? And I'm pretty sure you don't know the answer. Well, I'm just going to say that I would do what Jameis Winston does and go to Google to find out if there's any Tyler There's a Tyler Johnson that played in the White Sox minor league organization last year. Cha-ching. He's got to come here, doesn't he? I I would think so. If we're going to make it Tyler Bay, I mean, we got to get the trifecta. (laughs) Tyler Bay, Tiger Bay, Tampa, Tampa Bay. What the hell? Um, Yeah, it could get confusing. I mean, not to us necessarily. Who will score more? Tyler Johnson or Tyler uh, Johnson? <laughs> so uh, the Tyler Johnson in the hockey, he's got he's got a, a number of goals under his belt already. So yeah, he's about think, a, you uh, know you hope for twenty goals a year from him. So he's, I think he's, I think I saw where he scored over one hundred fifty goals now in his career. Oh, I'm sure he has. Yeah, yeah. And then, um, but I tell you what, though this this uh, this Tyler Johnson from Minnesota, I think he's going to be a great player. Um, I know P.J. Fleck a little bit because I covered him, you know, when he was the mm-hmm. Bucks receivers coach, and I talked to him uh, at the Outback Bowl. And, boy, what a, what a great young coach he is and, and the job he's done turning Minnesota into something relevant when 150 years they were, you know, a doorstop um, in, in the Big Ten. But, you know, he, he's really done a nice job. And he, he credits Tyler Johnson for instilling sort of a, a different culture and attitude and, you know, um, the guy, the guy just makes plays. Now he's had some drops. He's not, mm-hmm. he's not the most refined receiver. He's athletic. He's not a burner. He runs like a four or five, but he's got great vision. He runs well after the catch, and uh, so he's a good route and runner. He, and he goes after the ball, which he attacks the football. Yeah. When you watch him play, yeah, he really learned that. He learned how to get point at its highest point, and he can make spectacular catches. Uh, um, so I, I really like that. You put him. 
on the field with Godwin and Evans, I think you got something. I think they're going to have a tough time trying to cover him man to man. And so, and then you add Gronk and Howard, and oh, it's uh, it really is. I mean, it's and then Keyshawn Vaughn or Ronald Jones coming out of the backfield. I mean, who do you guard? Who do who do you who do you cover? You can only got eleven, right? So you can only double so many guys when you got eleven players, and uh, you know for that reason, I think they're going to be very very good. So. I like that two Tyler Johnsons, and I like that Tyler tweeted afterwards. We could call it Tyler Bay, which is uh, probably a little sounds a little better than. I wonder Tampa if he's Bay. trademarked that yet. He should before the <laughs> Tom other Brady Tyler would Johnson tell him to. Does yeah, <laughs> sure he would. What hasn't what hasn't Tom Brady already uh, branded at this point? It's it's unbelievable. Yeah. One last question. It's, it's actually more just a cool idea. Um, I don't think it'll happen, but Josiah had, had tweeted us and he said, hey, just a thought with the discussion of neutral sites and no fans. Wouldn't it be cool and different to have the NHL or NBA playoffs at cool outdoor venues instead of inside a depressing empty stadium? I'm sure you could keep ice cold in a ski town like Vail or something or basketball on the beaches of L.A. or an outdoor court set up in a downtown would be pretty cool. Probably once in a lifetime opportunity. I mean, it's it's a TV thing at that point, right? Mm-hmm. I mean. Because you can't have fans, so does it matter to me that they're outside? I mean, the lighting would be different. The you still don't have it. I don't know. I don't know. I'm not. I'm not impressed by the idea. I just. I, I hate that they're going to have to play without fans, but I do. You know, the crowd. The weird thing is going to be the lack of crowd noise, the mm-hmm. lack of energy in the building. You're going to see these guys playing great hockey, and I mean, you'll hear them playing hockey and hear them talking to each other, and all of that. It's just not going to feel like playoff hockey to me. I think the uh, the ice fits very well on a TV screen. It's a good, you know, it's a rectangular, um, you know, rink and whatnot. But I I just think I think it's going to be weird. Maybe probably less so for hockey than some. But I was yeah. thinking about this the other day with hockey. You know, so Steven Stamkos comes down two on one. You know, get an odd man rush and you know he sends a slap shot right through the goalie and. Is Steven Stamkos for the first time going to get to hear Dave Mishkin's call live? <laughs> yeah, he will. <laughs> From the press box. Scores! From the rafters. Scores! I was thinking about it the other day. I mean, it's kind of, you know, you might hear it on TV, too, at that point. because <laughs> Yeah, because it's so quiet. I was wondering, too, like, are they going to have, like, the organ guy, you know, dun, 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 you know what I mean? Like, Yeah, is Paul Porter going to be announcing the goals? A lightning goal! That's right. The lightning goal. Yeah, I, I, mean, I think they're trying to figure all that out. I mean, depends on if it's if it's truly considered a neutral site game or if it's you who know, can come in the building. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it's. Um, I, I don't think they know at this point. I think those are the decisions you make down the road once you figure out, you know, how you logistically can play the games first, and then you figure the rest out. But yeah. But kind of an interesting. Nice. I, I just thought it was cool. I mean, you know, you never thought about that, but you know, the NHL go to Canada somewhere out in the middle of nowhere, have some mountains in the background or something instead of just empty se- seats behind you for the TV angles. Some caribou walking by. Yeah, there you go. You know, yeah. some some ca- some mounties on their horses. <laughs> you know, hey, little Fargo a raid. Yeah. Um, yeah, just kind of That'd a cool, cool thought, though. No, it wouldn't be bad. I mean, I. Look, I just play, man. <laughs> just play. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't. You don't have to wear skates. I don't care if you get out there and like rollerblades. Just, I just want to see some damn sports, man. I do. I, I'm just. I'm so like. First of all, I'm tired of of doing what I do. 
which is right every day. Um, and these guys have kept me busy, thank God. But uh, in, you know, every day, every day that this it, this thing goes on, it wears on you mentally, obviously. And you try to stay optimistic, and you try to think, you know, boy, if we could just have sports, I'll say this: that one day we will. And it may not look like it did before, at least at first, but eventually we'll find a way to be able to sit next to each other at an arena one day. And in a weird way, you know, this will be the, and I I don't want to predict anything because I mean, you know, next thing you know, the Rays are drawing 5,000 fans and maybe people will be a little nervous to come back into big arenas and sit together. That that is also a, a psychological barrier. And I think you could see stadiums get smaller and things become more exclusive to Sky Suite holders and, and the whatnot. I do think, though, wherever it's played, people will appreciate sports more than they ever, ever thought they would because we've had it taken away. And mm-hmm. in the history of our country, right, this has never occurred. In the history of the world, um, 911, you know, okay, for a week. Uh, Hell, they played the NFL, played on JFK's, you know, during his funeral, and that, they were lambasted for it. So you've never seen the the axis of the of the sports world just completely stop revolve. You know, like mm-hmm. there's no revolutions. We're just we're just stuck. We're just we stop spinning, and that is such a hard thing for those of us that love sports. And yet, in a way. It's it's just going to make your appetite bigger for it, and you're going to scream louder, and you're going to want to go to every game, and you're going to want to, uh, you know, want your team to to win and entertain you and take you away from, you know, whatever trauma we will have been through. And so, sports has a way of unifying. We saw that after nine one one. We've seen it after major events throughout this world, and and I think they'll it'll be there for us again. Uh, and when it is, I think they'll be stronger and more popular and hopefully in the race case more well attended. Um, but I do, I, I think we'll, we'll appreciate the athlete. We'll appreciate mm-hmm. the, the musician. We'll appreciate the concert and the, the movie and just our freedoms again, you know, because I'll tell you what I already appreciate more is our schools. Yes. <laughs> Not that yes, I didn't appreciate them before. Trust me, but because you've had to do a little teaching and and you've had to put up with your little darlings and see how they act when when they're uh when they're trying to learn. It is hard. The homeschooling thing is tough. It's really tough especially when you're working for Well, yeah, that's time. that's the that's the hard part is that it's not like yeah. your job stopped or at least for many. Um, no. you know, unfortunately some have Hopefully been furloughed and, and yeah. or, you know laid off, yeah. but those that are still working, it's you right. know, it's it's in, in it's not for lack of trying by the teachers or the schools or anything, but yeah, uh, I will appreciate when they can go back to school. Well, and I will too because I got to be honest with you, I'm failing fourth grade or fifth grade. <laughs> I just, I mean, I and and the thing is, I know I passed it once, and I should be able to pass it again, but I'm failing. And so, like every day, my daughter will show up and she'll have a book, and I'm like, here we go, and she'll have some story to read, or it's on her iPad or on Gronk's Surface, whatever. And and she'll have a story she has to read. and But here's the thing. like She's in fifth grade. And I'm trying to think, like, was I that smart in fifth grade? Because I'm really, really kind of stupid now. And and I think what has happened is is that as a society, we've advanced from uh, see Dick run, see Jane, Jane run after. See Gr- so, Gronk run, Gronk catch ball, see, no need for a playbook. That's right. 
Right. Kind of the way I write. Um, and, and yet when I read, and so she's doing like these real sort of introspective poems, like they're into poems right now. And what is the meaning of this poem? And like the clock represents time and life. And, and when the kid was young, he didn't worry about time because he just was young and he had all the time. But then when he got older, you know, the, the clock man, the clock man asked the young boy and people will know this poem. It's famous. But people, the clock man asked the young boy and I'm paraphrasing, you know, what would you give uh, just for more time? He's like, well, I wouldn't give you anything because I have all the time in the world kind of thing. And then as he grows older and he realizes that he's at the end of his life, the clock man asked the old man, what would you give? You know, I'll give you my worldly, most worldly possessions, anything you want for more time. And, you know, and I'm trying to analyze and they're asking questions about this poem. And I'm going now, now, wait a minute now. So the clock man, and it's just really hard for me because I, I know I passed fifth grade. And yet, I'm not sure. I think I'm failing this year. That, I think that, I'm that's get the stuff you worry about when you hit your midlife crisis in your 40s, not, not I know. fifth grade. <laughs> I know. Like these are real existential poems, and I'm going, yeah. Don't get too deep and philosophical with these with these 10 year olds because all they want to do is you know know if they can go swimming with their friends tomorrow. Um, but they're having to do these great literature, you know, read read you know comprehension and stuff, and I have to do the reading. Um, so yeah, it's been. Uh, it's been interesting, and you know, forget about whatever you're doing. They they've got to get through their three and a half hours of school. That's the other thing I learned is that, as much as we realize now how much time we wasted at work, um, somehow school is done in three hours. <laughs> <laughs> so we so why are they gone at six forty five and 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 then go to school till one thirty or two when my kids are my kids are asking me what's for lunch and I'm saying did you finish your school Oh yeah we're done. I'm like, well, it's only 11.30, 11.45. I know. I finished all my stuff. So I said, do you waste that much time in class? Yeah. Yeah, we talk a lot. Yeah. See, I got a first grader, okay. and it's, you know, after 10 minutes, it's like, can I take a break? Yeah, oh, sure. I'm like, you just started. You just woke up. <laughs> yeah. What do you got to do? You wrote your yeah, name on the paper. You don't get to take a break yet. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I've been at this school thing for minutes. I think time. I think look, they're they're so resilient. I'm glad they are because I'm not. Mm-hmm. But the kids are resilient, and um, I know they're going through things. Somehow we just evolved into the, the Doctor Field. You like the shoelace without the shoe. Um, I know they're going through things, but I also I I don't think they can express how frustrated they are. Um, but they're being really good about not upsetting mom and dad because they know like <laughs> oh mom and dad are not in a good place like they're instinctive about that right they come upstairs you look at them and they go right back downstairs again and so it's kind of like okay i'll just be here on my ipad um but i'm sure they're going through stuff and i hope i hope we can bring them uh, back to normalcy here soon it's been it's been long but hey we've had fun and we've and thanks to our audience and our podcast listeners they've got questions for us and we've got Lots to talk about with Brady and Gronk, Ebra Brady, Ebra Gronk, and so um, yeah, the New England Patriots are here, and we're here to bring them to you. So anyway, we'll uh, hope you guys uh, enjoy the podcast. We're here every Monday through Friday, and of course, we'll uh, catch up with all the events of the weekend. Hopefully, some more news about sports starting would be great. Next week, we'll have Tom Jones on. The, the great Tom Jones yes. for maybe a couple shows. Rick and Tom back again. So we'll talk to him. He's been busy with all the political stuff and the, the coronavirus and, and uh, 
journalism and all that comes on from the Pointer Institute. So, yeah, we'll have a, a great week next week. So, for Steve Ersnick, I'm Rick Stroud of the Tampa Bay Times. Have a great weekend, everybody. We'll talk to you on Monday. 